0: Chapter 3 of Amos, kind of working our way uh, through this. He's really, in chapter three, he really gets into the uh, just a strong rebuke of Israel. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me about beginning the way Amos did was, as I said, he sort of cast this net uh, and he's drawing that closer and closer, and finally he gets closer, as close as Judah. Uh, but then he comes to Israel specifically, and the rest of the book unfolds unfolds pretty much with God's uh, rebuke of Israel and his warning of the judgment to come through Amos. Uh, one of the things that will be obvious tonight is, uh, and I entitled "The Message: Elect and Accountable," uh, because here he really drills down, and and one of the things that makes the the sin of Israel so egregious is that they were such a privileged people. And he begins this very chapter with that. So let's read verses one through 15. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family of which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does, young, does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets a lion has roared who will not fear the lord god has spoken who can but prophesy proclaim on the citadels in Ashtal and the citadels in the land of egypt and say assemble yourselves on the mountains of samaria and see the great tumults which within her and the oppressions in her midst but they do not know how to do what is right declares the lord those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. In chapter 4, he goes through a whole section there in regards to how God has over and over reached out or, or confronted them, yet they had not turned to God. So we'll get to that uh, perhaps uh, Sunday night. So I just want to look back in the chapter two, just a little bit uh, in regards to leading up to this. And there were a couple of things here that he mentions in chapter two, verse seven and eight, he mentions there that they had profaned his name. Essentially it's this, you exploit the innocent, the needy and the helpless, and then he goes further to say that you, and this is my summary, but you satisfy your lust with the worship of false gods under the guise of religion. And you think about that, that's two, the two main commandments. You remember they asked Jesus what's the greatest command and he says, the, love of the Lord God with all your heart, your soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself. So they're in violation of both of these commands. They have not loved their neighbor as themselves. In fact, their neighbor had been become fodder for them to satisfy their own greed and their lust. So, so they certainly were not loving their neighbors. And in the perversion of their worship of these false gods and their father and son going into the same woman, lying on garments, uh, offering up wines to the gods and all sorts of things, they were, they were certainly in that not loving the Lord their God. And so essentially they are in violation of the great command, the greatest of the commands that you shall worship the Lord, your God only. So they profaned his name in this. And then in verses 9 and 10 as well, but you they reject the true God by whose grace they had been delivered time and time again. It says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. They're lifting up their offerings to the God, the false gods, but it was I who delivered them. Not only uh, the Amorite, but brought them up out of Egypt and given them the land. So the very place where they're dre- dwelling was given to them by God. So, so they, are, they are an affront to God in every way. I gave you, he says in verses 11 and 12, he says he gave them prophets to speak, prophets to speak. And he even gave them Nazarites. And essentially he gave them prophets to speak the word and the Nazarites at at the very minimum to to, to demonstrate what consecration looked like. And what did they do? They corrupted the Nazarites and they silenced the prophets, whether they physically silenced them or whether they pushed them out of or didn't want to hear them, but they didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say. So, I mean, their guilt is just piling up here. They profane the name of God. They exploit the needy and the helpless and the innocent. They, they satisfy every sexual and corrupt lust in the, under the guise of religious worship and service to God. They, they forget the very God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt and established them in the promised land. And on top of all of that, they, they, they want to silence the very ones God sent to them to warn them. And as far as any example of consecration that the Nazarites might have done, they it says they, talked, they got them to drink wine, they got them to violate their oaths and their vows. And so whatever examples of consecration they had, they corrupted even those. It's just a thoroughly corrupt people and a nation altogether. In fact, in verse 13, God summarizes through, through Amos here in verse 13 of chapter two, he says, behold, I am weighed down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheep." And essentially you have made yourselves burdensome to me, you who ought to have been my glory. In other words, the people that he called out, singled out, he's going to introduce that in chapter 3. But the people he called out who ought to have been the instruments of the, of the display of the glory of God to the nations, the very The very apple of his eye, as it were, had abandoned him altogether and had profaned his name and had become a burden to to the Lord, burdensome to him. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3. So Amos begins again, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. That really drew my attention this week because he's speaking now against Israel. This is not a word of encouragement This is not a word of of permissiveness. This is not a word that says, it's okay, you're my special people. This word that's about to be spoken throughout the rest of this book is against Israel, his own people that he's about to say. So we need to not entertain any ideas that God is a permissive, um, gentle, grandfatherly-like figure who tolerates our rebellion and our resistance to his power and his grace. This is a word against Israel. He's already spoken this word against the nations and even uh, rebuked Judah in chapter two, verse four. But now he comes to Israel and all the family, he says, that was brought up from the land of Egypt. And then verse two, here's the word against them. You only have I chosen among all the family of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. To me, the whole book, the whole book hinges on that statement. There, this is their, uh, this is his word to Israel. His confrontation with Israel, being the elect people, by the way, is not a license. Is not a license to be disregarding sin. In fact, it's all. It's just the opposite. It makes us all the more accountable now as the elect of God. Those who benefited from the covenants of God from the from the eyewitness. Uh, testimony of God's deliverances all through those 40 years in the wilderness and all that he's done in their lives these people are eyewitnesses of that this is the elect of God his people and they had taken that as somehow permission or that God would somehow be lighter on them you know God is so different from mankind isn't he we, we, we give a lot of grace to, to friends and loved ones a lot of times, but we give very little grace to people we don't know. If, someone's, if someone in the news commits a crime, we think they ought to get the death penalty. But if that someone happens to be my son or my nephew or a cousin down the line somewhere, we want them to get life imprisoned at the most. We certainly don't want the death penalty. We're not like God. we, We take the people who are nearest and we hold them less accountable often than we do the people who are not nearest. God says, you are the people I chose out of all the families of the earth. You're the ones I chose. Now I'm going to punish you for all of your iniquities. And that's exactly the opposite of what we would expect among men. We would say among, among all the families of the earth, you're my favorite. Therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a lot of room here and I'm going to tolerate and be very, very patient with you while I'm not patient at all with the world. And it says something about God, but it also says something about the accountability of the elect of God. And I'm using that word specifically because I'm making application to the elect of God in terms of salvation we are as believers the elect of god but that is not license that is not to be assumed on that basis that god is is winking at our sin or our resistance or our rebellion it makes us all the more accountable because as the elect now we have the spirit indwelling given illumination and discernment into the truth of god's word and the conviction of the holy spirit and we're all the more accountable because of are the elect we're not licensed to sin At all. And that's exactly what the basis of this judgment goes. Verse two, he says as well, therefore, Therefore you only have a chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore or you might say for this reason or because of this I will punish you for all your iniquities. I am I am punishing you because you are the ones I have chosen over all the families of the earth. You're not getting excluded from this. I've already he's already mentioned the nations. They're not they're not the ones he chose from all the families of the earth. He mentions Judah certainly they are among his chosen. But he says, Israel, I'm punishing you because you are my chosen. And that ought to make Israel even more, in, in some ways, more frightened. So he goes on in this passage. And it's really interesting because if you read this passage, it seems a little bit extraneous. <laughs> uh, when you begin in chapter, verse 3 all the way down to verse 6, I mean, he gives these examples. And I, I was reading that this week and I'm thinking... It seems like a lot. I mean, he could have said that in one statement and made his point. What, what is Amos doing here repeating this, uh, contrasting that? Listen to these verses. Do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he's captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? I mean, those are, he stacks those in there and they're coming just rapid fire, just rat-a-tat-tat down through there. And and it just fascinated me this week. What is he, what is he getting at here? And this is what I think, you may, may have a different view, but I think he means here first of, in the first analogy, an appointment. It is necessary to preserve the fellowship with God. I think that's what he's getting at. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment This prophet and this confrontation is the appointment. In other words, you have gone away from me. There is no fellowship with us and there is an appointment now for us to come together in this confrontation. I am going to confront you in regards to your sin as a way of uh, bringing you back into fellowship with myself. Can two men walk together unless there is such an appointment? If we parted ways and we're ever going to walk again, somebody has to take the initiative to bring us back together again. And in this case, God is taking the initiative because with all the warnings he's going to talk about in chapter four, all the warnings, they had not responded. He says in chapter four, I gave you cleanness of teeth and I stopped the rain, but yet you have not returned to me. I've been reaching out to you through, through providence and yet you continue on in your rebellion. So if we're going to have fellowship with the people that I have chosen, I'm coming to confront you. There must be an appointment. Let me just say this. If we are as believers are walking in resistance or rebellion, Or if we're trying to shut God out of our conscience and in our heart when there's conviction, if we are resisting God and walking away from God and and no matter what he sets in our path, we continue to resist him, he has an appointment with you or me. He will not let his people continue on in their course without that confrontation at some point. Later on, he says, does God God do anything without revealing his counsel to his prophets? You haven't been listening to the prophets. They've been shouting and screaming from the rooftops of what I've been saying to you. And you've been running away and and resisting and pushing away from that. God saying here, I think there is an appointment now. And I've initiated that as God. Notice as well in verse 4, really verse verse 4, both of those phrases I think are kind of parallel there. But he says, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured captured something? What I'm understanding from that is that in in essence the judgment or the confrontation or the punishment has already gone forth in, in regards to its certainty from God. In other words, a lion doesn't growl when he hadn't caught any prey yet. He's not in possession of the prey. He hasn't captured it yet. He growls when he's got it. It's a triumphal growl, if you will. But in this sense, that's the imagery that's made here. In other words, there was a lion prowling, as it were, and he, you weren't aware of him. But when he launched out and took his prey, once he has it in his possession, then he growls. Otherwise, he's going to scare him away. And to me, it seems to suggest to me that what Amos is prophesying here, what the Lord is roaring that he says later on, is that the judgment pronounced upon Israel and the nations has already gone out in terms of the certainty of it. It may not have been fulfilled in history yet, but you can count on it as certain because the prey is already in his hands, as it were. The same is true of the final judgment coming someday. It's not here yet. God judges in many ways here. He sends judgments into the world. He disciplines his own, ch- his own children and he, and he punishes the wicked in our generation. But the final judgment is yet to come. But it is as certain as the, as the judgment today. It is certain because it has come forth from the Lord. It is the will and purpose of God Almighty. And so in that sense, I think he means here that a lion roaring has taken the prey. It belongs to him. He has already taken it into his possession and it is certain that it will not escape. The same is true even with a young lion who doesn't roar unless he has captured something. In verse 5, there's an interesting dynamic there. There's a bait. And then there's an effective trap. He says in verse 5, does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? No, (laughs) because nothing drew the bird to the trap. Uh, I remember we used to set rabbit hollers. Some of you people may not know what that is, but rabbit gums. We called them rabbit gums. But uh, we had a a man in our community that had a rabbit hunt and preserve. And he would pay us $5 for every rabbit we could catch. So you can imagine how many rabbits, 12 year olds were catching, man, we was talking, we was loading them down with rabbits, but, but we would go out sometimes. And we'd set as many as 20 of those things out in these old pines and in the thickets and everywhere else. And we'd go out there and sometimes the the door would be dropped down, but we didn't set it right. In other words, there was no no way a rabbit could get in that trap because we didn't get the trigger just right. And when we walked off, maybe the wind blew a branch or something. It hit the trigger and the door shut. So a lot of our traps would have the door shut, but they'd be empty. And that was the imagery that had here. Birds don't fly down, in this case, into a trap where there's no bait. So that's the first principle. There's something there to lure the bird. Birds don't come unless there's something that's drawing and promising to satisfy the hunger of the bird. And then when a, when a bird does come, a strap doesn't spring up and catch nothing. In other words, the bird triggers the trap and the trap springs up. And that seems to have something to do to me with what God is saying to the Israelites through, through Amos. Amos. In some ways God's judgment and God's punishment was the was the bait in the trap in other words they were drawn away by their own lust it was exploited god may have let them prosper to some degree and that prosperity exposed as it were their carnality and so the bait's in the trap And they didn't see the bait and say, we ought not to be carnal. We're God's people. We live by spiritual truth. We don't live and we're not guided by our fleshly instincts. And, And so we're going to resist that lure and that temptation to prosperity. But God prospered them. He shut off the enemies. And Israel in this period of time was prospering very much so. In fact, they thought everything was fine. The bait's in the trap. And what happened when they came to the trap and they started satisfying their fleshly lusts? Then they grew more and more and more and more corrupt. And finally, now Amos is saying the spring is trapped and there's something in the trap. It's you, Israel. You fell for the bait. I gave you prosperity. I I allowed for you to to grow and prosper and to find some relative peace in this period of time in this world. And what did you do with that? You exploited that and you became even more corrupt. I think the the bait was to expose the carnality of Israel. And boy, they sure fell for that as well. So Amos tells them a bird doesn't fall into a trap where there's no bait. And a, and a trap doesn't spring from the earth when it captures no bird. And then finally, kind of moving more towards his point in verse 6, he says, If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people tremble? And that is an absolute truth. That was a part of their alarm system. If there was an invading force, they would sound the trumpets. Every man would go to his station. They knew they were under assault, under, under siege. That's a, that's a right reaction. That's, that's what happens. And he says, if that happens, do the people not tremble? Of course they do. But what has Israel done? The prophets have been blowing the trumpets all along, but yet you have not trembled, Israel. In fact, you've grown fat and satisfied in your luxury and in your prosperity. You haven't heard the trumpet blasting, and you're not fearing. And everybody knows that's what you do when you hear the trumpet, but not Israel. And then he says in verse 6, which is, a, which is really striking, If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Has not the Lord done it? So when this calamity, this is foresight, when this calamity happens, just understand that the Lord's been sounding the trumpet the bait was there, you fell for the bait, he exposed your corruption, all these things are true. Just know that whenever, whenever the Lord brings calamity upon this city, it is the Lord who has done it. It's not the Syrians, it's not the Assyrians, it's not the Philistines, it's not the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites. It is the Lord who has brought the calamity upon Israel. And they might have even drawn from that uh, in the past as well, the calamities that they had already experienced. Their, their period of the uh, period of falling and coming back and falling and coming back, all those calamities the Lord is sovereign over. And he brings them into these cities and into our lives to accomplish his purposes. And I do believe with all my heart, sometimes he brings those into our lives to expose our self-reliance, uh, our our tendency to navigate our own way by our own intellect and our own strength through circumstances in life. I think he brings the storm and the calamities into our life to expose to us all that we reserve to ourselves and withhold from him if we are his people. And Israel was and is. Surely the Lord God, verse 7 does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servant, the prophets. So everything that is saying and everything had been prophesied had been the Lord revealing his secret counsel to Israel. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm not springing this out of nowhere. God has not been reluctant to communicate and to warn on and on and on. He is slow to anger, slow to be moved to wrath. But you are stubborn and blind, essentially, Israel. You have stubborn stiffened your neck. You have hardened your heart, and you wouldn't hear when the trumpet blasted, and you wouldn't hear when the the prophets came to you, and you corrupted the Nazarites and wanted silence from the prophet. All day long, as the scriptures say, the Lord had reached out to them, and they had resisted it all the way so they had no excuse that the lord hadn't been free or clear with them about what has happened i think even in our day read the scriptures uh, it's filled it's filled with the clarity and the clear word of God in regards to what unfolds in our lives, whether we're unbelievers coming under judgment or whether we're believers who are, who are not resolved in their following Christ and who are wavering in their faithfulness. It is very clear to me in the scriptures how God has said through the prophets, this will be the outcome of that. And there's no way you're going to get around that. One of the most frightening verses in the Bible to me is a man reaps whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Passages like he's sown to the wind and he reaps the whirlwind. There is a reciprocal response to the way we live our lives. Those are serious and sober warnings from the word of God through the prophets sounding the trumpet into our lives. But how many Christians just disregard those, and we just go on with our lives, and we think God is okay with our little sins, just don't do any of the big ones. There are no little sins. They are all in the front to an infinitely holy God. Amos is laying these truths out to the Israelites. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Notice now he, he summarizes that, going back to what he said about a lion, but he says here, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? That's a that's a that's a a, a statement there. That's a declarative statement. He's given these analogies. He's made this analogy. He even began the book with that analogy. The Lord roars from Zion. So, so he's bringing that home now. He's saying to them, very, very in a declarative way, the Lord has roared. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? So if they're not fearful, they're blind. They're blind. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? I was watching, I love these nature documentaries, but particularly at night, you ever hear the sound those lions make as they're prowling at night, especially the males, they do that almost like a grunt sound. And I mean, they'll be showing in night vision, and you can see whether they're warthogs or hippos or whatever they are. Uh, once they hear that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Way off in the distance you can see them start getting nervy, nervous, they're, they're getting fidgety and they start bringing their little ones near and, and some of them start heading away from the sound. And that The lion has roared, who will not fear? Every, every animal in the savanna when they hear that lion roar they know they're on the prowl, they know the big male lions and the females are out hunting. And surely not a single prey item uh, doesn't fear. Even a hippo, which is almost impossible to take down, they even get fidgety. I think that's the analogy he's giving here. The Lord, he goes on to say, has roared. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? It is insanity not to fear. And man, if you look at our world today... With tsunamis and wildfires and earthquakes, I I heard when the hurricane hit out in L.A. that they had an earthquake at the same time the hurricane was there. The Lord's roaring. I mean, he's roaring. Who would not fear? I mean, look around. Crime going out the window, corruption all around, natural disasters, all sorts of things unfolding. You don't even know one day from the next what's going to happen in the news. We're not even surprised anymore when we hear something. The Lord roars. Who will not fear? Only a, only a, a generation given over to, the, to their own depravity would be deafened to that roar. But what do they say well the scientists explain well actually there's a scientific reason for this. Well maybe God used science to bring about an earthquake and the shifting of the platelets and all those different things. But the God is is sovereign over the nature that you're describing there. God is in back of the storm. He if a calamity comes into a city has the Lord not done it in his ultimate sense has he not done it. That's Amos's message. And after he says that in verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? Then he says it plainly, the Lord God has spoken. That's the roar. This, this book is the speaking of the Lord God. You wouldn't hear, you wouldn't hear famine, he goes on to say, you wouldn't hear locusts. You wouldn't, hear, you wouldn't hear drought. You wouldn't hear rain over here and a drought over there. You closed off your ears and your heart to the voice of God as declared in all of creation, Psalm 19.1. So now he sends a prophet. Thus the Lord is roaring, and Amos says, the Lord has spoken. And he has spoken. Let me just say, he's spoken just as loudly and just as authoritatively in this book. You don't have, have to have Amos here saying it. He, he recorded it. It's written down and it's as certain and as sure in this book as it was the day that Amos spoke it. God is still the same God. He is not more tolerant of America's sins than he was Israel's. He's not more tolerant of America's sins than he was Philistia or, or the Moabites or Edom. He's not, he hadn't grown easy on sin through the, through the centuries. He is the same God, and if what Israel was doing was egregious to God and an affront to the holiness of God, how much more is what America is doing with the freedom that we have and and the prosperity and the power we have in our generation, how much more accountable are we to God in our capacity to do both good and evil, it seems. It's a frightening thing. Notice in verse 9 was interesting to me because here he seems to be calling these wicked nations come and witness this. In fact, I wonder if this is not the not the not the indication that he's going to raise up these nations to bring the punishment because he invites them essentially proclaim on the citadels of Ashdod and the citadels in the land of Egypt. Go down to Ashdod and Philistia and then go down to Egypt. Go to their power centers, their citadels where they have their offenses and say to them, Hey, y'all come up to Samaria, the mountain of Samaria, and look at the tumult here and the oppression in her midst. Bear witness to it. I mean, that could be, that could be a testimony of God's righteousness and His holiness to the nations. Come and bear witness to what God deals, what God tolerates in His own people. He doesn't tolerate. Don't think that you're somehow in judgment for sin or excluded and that Israel's permitted to sin. Israel is as guilty as you are. Come up and bear witness to the tumult that's coming upon Israel. And it could be to make Israel a shame or to make Israel, as it were, a mockery in their eyes. Here's the people of God and look at the tumult down in the city there. Look at the, look at the oppression happening there. They've, they've been abandoned by their God. To basically to shame her, Israel is made a spectacle before her enemies in verse 9. And then he returns to Israel, and this is this is what's sad. And I really thought about this is what corruption and habitual and unrepentant and harbored sin and resistance to God brings about. But in verse 10 he says, But they do not know how to do what is right. These are this is God's people. They had the law. They saw the smoke and the clouds on Mount Horeb, not these individuals, but the the, the ones living then heard the the thunder and the lightning, and they preferred uh, Moses tell them what God said rather than come into the presence of such a fearful God. These are people whose whole life history, their generational history was in, in lockstep with seeing God work marvelous miracles and deliverances at their hands. And this people, through their sin and through their resistance, had grown so hardened now that they don't even know how to do the right thing when I read that passage I said man that's, that's our nation today We don't know, this country don't know how to do the right thing anymore. There was a time when we knew the right thing to do and we struggled as to whether not to do it because there might be cost and sacrifice involved. But our generations prior to us, that great generation was willing to make the sacrifice and they went off to war and they they made the sacrifice. They knew the right thing to do and it was hard to do it, but they did the right thing. We've come full circle now. We don't even know what the right thing to do is. I mean, there's so much corruption now that even a man who wants to honor and be a patriot for his country has to second guess whether or not his government's sending him into a legitimate war. I mean, it's undermining everything now. We've lost the ability. We don't know what to do or how to do it anymore. That's how, that's the deceitfulness and the hardening of sin. You let a generation and a nation and a people harbor sin and nurse sin and and cater to that flesh long enough and they will become hardened and blind and oblivious to what the right thing to do even is, much less how to do it. I mean, listen to the news. I mean, we've got people Telling our children that there's more than two genders. We've got people who are insisting on the right to deceive or hide from parents whether or not their children is expressing some desire to change their gender in the school setting. We have the exploitation. I, I think I've said this before, but I remember. I remember when that whole uh, these little kids beauty pageant things came out on, on on the TV, and I remember when I first saw that, I looked at hope and I said, "That's a pedophile's fantasy right there." You're parading these little kids all across this stage, and every every pedophile in the nation and across the globe is satisfying his fantasies watching that and you're making money portraying it exploiting these the most innocent among us these children we don't know how to do the right thing anymore that's where these minor prophets really come home because here's the problem you and i who still know know the right thing to do and even how to do it you don't live you don't live in a vacuum from that culture If you're not on guard, that culture is going to be affecting you in some small incremental way. And you're creeping towards the same thing if you're not aware and conscious. We really, as Christians, we ought to be crying out daily on our knees, Oh God, preserve us from this corruption. Clear our minds, dedicate, consecrate our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. So so infatuate us with your glory that these things will be immediately evident to us as diminishing of that glory. And Lord, help us to grow now in our faith to where we would be prepared to lay down our life rather than abandon our faithfulness in you. That's what we ought to be praying right now. Because I think if we, if we let this stuff go and we, we just write it off as, well, that's the far left, that's the liberals, that's the wicked in this world. But we, we can gather in our enclaves and we can all be okay. You're living in a fantasy world, especially if you ever use your phone or turn on your television or, or go out in society at all. Because the testimony of that wickedness is all around you. I don't think it's coincidental that on the back of your Apple iPhone, there's an apple, a fruit. And it just so happens that there's a bite taken out of that. And that says to me a lot about that that fruit that was taken a bite out of in the Garden of Eden. And from that point on, sin came into the world. It's almost like this very device that you're holding in your hand, this Apple device, has its own warning on the back. Beware, you are of a fallen nature this thing will lead you down a fallen path and expose you to darkness that you, can only, you can't even conceive of. And how many of us Christians are carrying one? It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. I, I told somebody before, if I weren't in ministry, I wouldn't even own one. I got along just fine without one. We used to come home, check our answering machine, call people and go out and work all day long without every one time having to stop and use the phone. I mean, we, we got a lot of work done in those days. But now you can't get any work done on a job. Ask some of these construction workers. Every five minutes your phone's ringing. You got to lay your hammer down, pick up your phone, and talk to somebody for 10 minutes, go back. What was I doing? It's just all these things. I'm just saying that to say we are surrounded by The same forces of darkness at work in the life of Israel and in all those wicked and heathen nations. The devil didn't get less effective in our generation. He may have changed his tactics and he certainly has a lot more technology to make use of in our generation. But he is just as wicked and just as evil and just as designing your downfall as he ever was anybody on this planet. Because his He he rejoices in destroying those vessels created in the image of God. That's all that's left to him because his judgment is sure as well. So God will call the nations as a witness in verse 9. That struck me uh, as well as, as if God is calling these wicked nations so that Israel might be exposed for what she is in this comment. She's The sinner. Now let me finish up with these verse 11. Therefore thus says the Lord God an enemy even one surrounding the land will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Everything that you hold value, all your power, they'll be looted. And it'll be those, these nations an enemy who's surrounding the land. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches the lions from the lion's mouth, a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. That's a, that's a, a powerful imagery. The lions done got the sheep. <laughs> all you, you got a hold of is one leg. And that's all you're going to get. The lion got the rest of the sheep. You got the tail, you got the leg, you got remnants of the lion. And he said, that's exactly how quickly and abruptly Israel will be snatched out of Samaria. They'll be holding on to the corner of a bed and a sheet. It's It's all they'll be able to hold on to. And they'll be snatched away so quickly that they'll drag the sheet along with them. But the bed stays there. The house stays there. Everything stays there. They're ripped, as it were, from Samaria. Just like the shepherd rips that lamb's leg from the wolf or from the lion. Here he says and testify against the house of Jacob declares the Lord the God of hosts for on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions I will also punish the altars of Bethel the horns of the altar will be cut off you know Bethel was that uh, false place where they set up the calves it really is striking if you read the northern kingdom but they did they, they almost tried to parallel all the feast and all the special days of Judah and they made it a day different our festival was this day so they wanted to distinguish themselves but at the same time they wanted to hang on to the religion of judah and so it it all became so corrupt just so overwhelmingly corrupt and bethel was was a, a central shrine as it were of that he says i will punish the altars of bethel bethel the horns of the altar will be cut off you know the horns was essentially what held the sacrifice in place in fact, it was a sacred thing. In fact, if you fled into the temple and you would hold on to the, uh, the horns of the altar, it's almost like a, a refuge. Nobody dared come and take you from the horns of the altar. He's essentially saying to them, you can flee into the, into the temple as you built in Bethel. Grab hold of the horns of the altar. There is no sacredness about that false religion. I will break those horns off and they will fall to the ground. You will have no refuge and no place of preservation you will come out of Samaria. Then of their wealth, he says here in verse 15, I will smite the winter house together with the summer house. You can't flee away to one from the other. You can't say, well, they're coming near to the winter house. Let's flee to the summer house. Surely we'll be safe there. Or the vice versa. You you, you can't say, well, they're coming for the summer house. Let's go to the winter house. All of your property, summer and winter, all that is going to go away. It will Perish The houses of ivory, he says, in verse 15, will also perish. And the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. When I, when I said, when the lion roars, does the lion roar unless he's already taken something? When you read this, that sounds certain to me. That doesn't say, if you don't do something, this is going to happen. You've already done something. <laughs> I've already sent you Prophets. I've already sounded the trumpets. You have done responded in no way whatsoever. There's no turning back now. Your punishment has gone forth. It is as sure in, in my hands now as the prey is in the lions when he growls and when he roars. Israel, if there was a sensitivity in Israel at all, they would have been terrified right here. This is, this is a certain way of speaking. And folks, when I read the Bible and I hear about the warnings of the wicked and the ungodly, regardless of the nation that they are in, we ought to tremble just as much. We ought to read that and understand that that's the same God who is still in power today. He didn't abdicate His throne and He hasn't abdicated His power. And though He has been long-suffering and merciful and patient throughout the generations, there is a day when that will come to its conclusion. The redeemed will be brought home to be with the Lord and all those who have rejected God will feel the full weight and force of the wrath of God for all of eternity. That is a very real that is a very real threat and it is certain it is spoken here in declarative language it even concludes in verse 15 as he starts off into chapter 4 but he concludes there declares the Lord this is the declaration of the Lord as Christians I'm convinced that our prayers ought to ought to be concentrating on pleading for God's mercy on this nation while he brings, brings the elect home. Uh, I mean, I think there are people out there that are going to be saved, and God is calling them out, and it may be through great suffering that he calls them out. But I'm, I'm, my prayer is that, Lord, would you grant mercy, would you grant grace that we might reach out with the gospel in freedom. May you push off the day where it will cost us our necks to be faithful. Lord, would you give us a window. Would give, us, give us patience here. And even while we're praying that, you see the world moving farther and farther and farther. And more militant and more angry against the things of the Lord. And it doesn't, it doesn't bode well. You might say, well, Larry, you sound like a pessimist. No, I'm a pessimist when it comes to what men will do. But I'm an optimist when it comes to what God can do and does do and will do. And that's where I think the Christian has to stand. Stand with me tonight. And chapter four is really interesting because here God, in chapter four and beyond, God begins to describe uh, how he had reached out incessantly and mercifully and how they had gone and gone and yet continued to go their own ways. It's just a sobering reminder. Father, thank you again for your word. And lord we do ask for grace and for mercy and lord i i pray that we're not just asking for mercy to put it off but that we that we might have mercy that we might equip those in the church today that we might equip our families as fathers and, and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers lord i ask for mercy that we might prepare this generation to suffer lord it may be that my generation will miss that sort of suffering, but I'm convinced that there's a very close generation, perhaps could be ours, but certainly could be our children and our grandchildren who are gonna pay a heavy price to be found faithful. And Lord, I just pray for mercy that we might equip them. I pray for the mercy of, of devoted parents and, and, and devoted churches where we take seriously the command to disciple one another, Father, to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us Lord, I pray for mercy that these things might happen so that there would be in a generation who would be equipped to stand faithfully. And Lord, I, even as I pray for mercy and even as we think of that, Father, we also have a steadfast hope that one day when the ages have concluded and all have been called in to the wedding feast, your righteous name will be vindicated in the universe. Every wickedness will be put down, every, as Philippians says, every tongue and things in heaven and on earth and below the earth will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to to your glory. And so, Father, as believers, we, we anticipate that day with great expectation. And, Lord, we're so thankful that on that day we'll be with Christ, having been bought by his precious blood. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.